Society has mistaken wealth to mean money and assets. The Wealth We Define podcast is focused on building generational wealth beyond the materialistic by focusing on our emotional, mental, physical, spiritual, and relational well-being. Together with a cohort of health and wellness advocates, we'll discuss ways to design your own path to true wealth on the Wealth Redefined podcast. How you guys doing? I'm Tony Arce, and this is the Wealth Redefined podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lauren Smith, clinical psychologist and founder of Creating Healing Interventions, affectionately known as Shy. Lauren, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Oh, it's a pleasure. We had a little chance to get to know one another and just talk about the, the work that you're doing. And I think it's just so commendable. But you know, before we get into all that, uh, originally from the south side of Chicago, right? I am the Woodlawn community, to be exact. That's awesome. So what was it like growing up around there? I think it was really fun. Like I met so many different people, but I think that was also the intention of my parents. They intentionally put me and my siblings in various different community activities so that we can be able to be immersed with many different cultural backgrounds, and I really appreciated that. But also I think being in that community and growing up in the community, it really highlighted so much work that needed to be done, particularly in communities of color mm-hmm. and what was lacking, like community centers, for example. Me and my siblings were lucky that we had parents who cultivated a lifestyle for us to be able to go out and learn more, but so many of my peers didn't have that. And that was lacking heavily within the community, but also accessible mental health services as well. And not only that, but one of the things that we had talked about uh, before was just that the the prevalence in those communities, that it's something that mental health, while we see it, and even as kids, right, we acknowledge those things that we can, we're empathetic and we have this just emotional intelligence for others, but somehow we lose that because it gets embedded in us that we're not to talk about those things, that there's a taboo, there's a whatever that is. What, what was it for you that you were experiencing that I'm, I'm sure it had a lot to do with why you do what you do? Absolutely. I think the impact of community violence, that was really huge. Yeah. And how a lot of individuals, even friends, have became so desensitized to it. And I use the word desensitized now, but when I was younger, I didn't really realize that that was what it was. They could talk about it with ease, as if it was nothing. What did you see it as when you were younger? Like, what? Not obviously. You you come to understand that now, but right. back then, what was it to you? Yeah, I I felt like I started to take it into account as okay, maybe this is something normal that's happening in every community. I see. I see. Yeah. Like it's yeah, it's just the norm. This is what life is, right? Absolutely. When did you realize that it wasn't? Ooh, this wasn't until high school. Wow. Yeah. So I remember distinctly, I went to Morgan Park High School, um, so further south. um, And I remember distinctly one day me and one of my friends were taking the bus home from school. And these neighbor school kids got on the bus and essentially jumped a boy from my high school. And it was so terrifying to me. And the impact that it had on me, my willingness to take the bus again, as well as my friend, we were both terrified. And it didn't click until that point that I was like, this is not normal. And these sorts of acts should not be happening. But for so many people, especially when we went to school the very next day, talking about it, it seemed normal to so many others. And that's when I started to wonder, why is this? normal for so many individuals? Why is fighting or any sort of other community violence depicted as something that's just going to happen? Now, is this something that you 
internalize or was it something that, um, you know, you would talk about friends, family, asking questions or tell me what was going through your mind back then? Yeah. So I remember immediately when I got home from school that day, I spoke to both my parents about it and they were also very concerned about both me and my friend's safety. And so after that, both my dad and my friend's dad, they basically tag team to pick us up and drop us off at school. Mm. From that point forward, they're like, you cannot take the bus anymore. Like, we're terrified about what happened. This should not have happened to either of you. And this presents a a dire safety concern. Wow. And for you, what like what was going through your mind in terms of, you know, just the fear, the the let me get out of here or there's something I have to do. Like for you, when did that become? Well, I guess before I get to that point of when did you decide to do what you do now? Right. What, what, What was it that led to that? Yeah, so I think definitely what I know now, that was that fight or flight response that I had in the moment. But as I started to continue on in high school, I took an AP psychology class because I started to say like, okay, I think I want to work with children in some capacity. I always had an affinity towards working with children, but also maybe I need to do this in more of a helping way. Yeah. And so I took um, AP Psych, and I remember us taking a field trip to Cook County. Wow. And we had two prisoners speak to us, and their stories seemed to be almost synonymous with what I watch peers experience in terms of community violence exposure, but also other sorts of trauma that they had experienced from exposure to domestic violence or experiencing poverty. And I wholeheartedly view that as a trauma and its impact on people. But hearing their stories that led to where they were, that's when I had this like culminating experience of like everything that I had experienced up to that point started to make sense and things Mm. started to click for me of, Again, this is not normal, but also in communities of color, there are not enough resources available to be able to help people cope through these not-so-normal experiences. People are just made to sort of pick themselves up by their bootstrap and keep going as if this is okay. And I know so many times in schools where someone was shot or killed or something, they will offer crisis counseling, but it would be very time limited and it was voluntary. That should not be voluntary when a crisis of that magnitude happens in a school. Why aren't schools doing more? But also, is there any accountability from others within the community saying, hey, schools need to do more? Because most communities also don't know what that more looks like. Right. No. And, and you know, as I'm hearing this, I'm almost... You know, it's interesting because on one end, interesting just from a observation standpoint, right? It's sad that everything you're saying is so true. But, you know, as, as you're telling the story, I'm seeing it almost as, you know, when in those things that, and without putting labels, I mean, it is what it is. Racism, is, racism exists, you know, hate exists. There's a, lot, there's a lot of lack of self-love. And so that, you know, translates into a lot of bad things. Now, with that being said, the oftentimes, and especially you, you go back in time, a lot of those resources were being provided by people that didn't look like the people that were being affected, right? And so how, as that person who's affected, who's seen something, can you trust someone who's never seen it? And now you're being judged almost in a sense, not from a standpoint of, oh, this happened to you and there's this trauma, but rather from a, a generalization of what all humans experience. And even if you come from affluent areas, like it's almost the expectation that 
you're a person, so no matter what your background is going to be the same. And it's obviously not true. You come from certain areas, your psychological impact or your psychological like well-being is going to depend a lot on your environment. You got to experience that firsthand. Mm-hmm. And almost like while you're in it, you're aware of it and like this is not right, which doesn't happen very often, right? So you right. become a voice from within that sought with to go out and get your degrees and whatever to come back to it that makes you so much relatable. How has that provided you a way to connect and and really see something or maybe those things that you saw growing up in contrast don't have to happen anymore? Yeah. So I would say once I entered my doctoral program in Texas, that's when everything started to illuminate even more. I specifically worked with a lot of low income families of color, specifically Latino families there. And hearing their experiences, they were not disparate for mine. They lacked so many basic needs within the community. And it was the first time that me and others who could relate to the community were providing services to them. And I think specifically fast forwarding into my um, postdoctoral fellowship at University of Chicago last year, that it's amazing, I, by the way. Like that's so yeah, incredible. <laughs> yeah, I worked specifically with victims of community violence here in the city, and a lot of those families, unfortunately, were Black families. But that relates to the statistics here in the city. Also, that's not something that is unknown to a lot of individuals. That most victims of gun violence here in the city are Blacks and Black men specifically. And a lot of those families that I work with, they were like, "You are the first Black no therapist that we had." Yeah. Wow. And as much as it was an honor to be able to provide them with therapy services, and I hear this often from therapists of color, it's like almost this weight or burden that comes on you from having such a pivotal role within the lives of people that look like you because you want to provide them with the best services. You don't want to let them down in any regard. And so I had this dual experience of like, oh man, I'm doing exactly what I love. I'm finally a doctor and providing services in my hometown. And blocks away from where I grew up, but also, wow, I'm really stressed out from doing this work in my community because also I'm trying my best every single day not to let these families down. It's a heavy burden. Absolutely. And how do you even, I mean, you hear people talking about energy a lot, you know, and and, and that gets thrown around. and, And I think we just have a very baseline understanding of what that means. But for you, you know, and, and when you hear energy and as you kind of give that energy up, how do you replenish that? How, what's your health and wellness? Uh, you know, we'll get to the, the, the wealth redefined part, but like for you, how do you take care of you? Yeah. So I would admittedly say I was horrible at that at one point. And like you were just giving yourself away and not replenishing it. Yeah, of, absolutely. Know. And that was so true, especially probably right after the pandemic hit and working from home, like there was no work life balance at all or separation because right. you're working in your home, dealing with heavy traumas. And it's not like you can shut yourself off. Like I used my commute time before to have that separation between work and home, but there's no commute. I'm just going straight from my desk to now either the kitchen to cook dinner or I'm relaxing on the couch. How am I going to be able to support myself? I couldn't. Like I felt still myself thinking about my sessions or found myself responding to emails later than I would or looking at work texts from clients. But I say now 
I'm so much better at finding that balance and doing things solely for me. Like I have a morning routine where I'll wake up in the morning, I'll make my coffee. And then I have this book of affirmations and I make sure I read it's an affirmation for every single day. And I love it because it helps to keep me on track. So before I look at my phone or anything, I make my coffee, read that affirmation, really take it in and then start my day. Most of the time I start with a workout from Peloton or some sort. Mm -hmm. That also helps me to really take care of myself and get myself in a good headspace before I enter the workday. And I would say I've noticed a tremendous difference in how I feel. I can't imagine not. I mean, that's a great routine. So when you talk about really, you know, the the getting into it or really... and I had it on the top of my head now. I forgot exactly what you said. But, you know, of, of the affirmations and really getting into it, right? What I think that's such an important thing to bring up because a lot of times people say things, whether it's prayer, you know, mantras, affirmations, and they say them, but their mind is somewhere else, right? So they're not really thinking about it. For you, what does that look like to really, you know, think about what you're saying? Yeah. So I think the biggest part is not checking my phone in the morning because I've noticed with myself, but also what I hear from a lot of people, you get so entrenched with whatever's on your phone that you start to have other thoughts from what's what you saw on your phone, whether it was a text right. message or you're checking social media and you're not really giving yourself time to be with yourself. Sort of like the idea of mindfulness, right? Where you're focused on the here and the now in the moment. And so I really try to, even though it's so funny, I say this because I'm not a big proponent of a, all mindfulness practices, but now I'm thinking about it, this is mindfulness where I wake up in the morning and I'm very intentional about what I do, but I also take time to really think about the affirmation that I read and how it applies to my life or how it can apply to something that hasn't happened yet in my life. And most of the time when I take the time to think about what is this affirmation trying to communicate to me for this specific day, then I have this moment of realization where I'm saying, oh, wow. Like, this is what I need to start doing differently this point forward. You get an aha moment. Yeah, absolutely. And so it really helps me to set my intention for the rest of the day. Like this morning, I did not deviate from that routine. And the affirmation was about looking your best and giving your best self to the world. And I really took that into account. Like, yes. You look great, by the way. Thank you so much. Like, you really should be putting your best foot forward in this sense. Absolutely. And when you look good, you feel good. Absolutely. There's a, a, a Buddhist saying that I always uh, love to share with people, and it's, show me where you are, and I'll tell you where you've been. Show mm. me where you are, and I'll tell you where you're going. I love it. So it's just, you know, be present, be aware, be aware of what's going on. And, and like you said, do your best in everything, and you'll see that your life changes exponentially, right? Now, the wealth redefined part is something that, We've come, we talked about a little bit and just how people have this perception that money brings wealth and that, you know, by, by getting, by having, by accumulating, by that thing that they think about in the future, if they have, you know, now they'll be happier. But, you know, you made a great point in, in, in an attorney that you were talking to and saying that, you know, I, I, that this attorney knows a lot of other attorneys that are very wealthy, never lost a case, super successful, and they're taking their lives. So mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, Money's not going to bring you that peace, that joy that you think is coming from spending cash to get something, right? Tell me about that in terms of wealth and how you, for you it's, it's shifted from some of those things to understand that 
I can't buy my way into good health. I can't good mental health, physical health, emotional health. For you, what does wealth mean? Yeah, um, I think wealth is definitely taking into account my spiritual being on a day to day and making sure I'm attending to that and that I'm happy. And even when I'm not happy, I'm still in a content place. And I, I think I reached that place a while back. Like, I think it's so funny when you mention wealth, people think and automatically assume, oh, you're a doctor, you're rich. Right. You went into this <clears throat> field to be rich. And a lot of my friends joke about that, like, oh, you're a big baller. Just like, no, that's not the case. But also, that's not why I right. pursued this field. Wealth within my career is me giving back to people. And that's partly why Shy exists now, because I wanted to be able to have an impact and give back to the community. And that fills my spiritual being of being able to make a difference in other people's lives. That's accumulating wealth in my regard. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, even to that point, one of the things that you were saying was how most of the people that you knew don't come across uh, mental health professionals. And but for you, it's also not just that that you want to help others, but it seems from what I gather that you also want to find a way to connect therapists to people. Right. That even you're doing that for the for your people in your community and, and those that, that seek you. But you want to make this more available period, and, and get more therapists to become aware of the problems in your community, right? Am I, was I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. I would love more mental health awareness in general for more clinicians to recognize that everybody cannot access them. And that's just a reality of the matter from people who are un or underinsured. I think especially at the time right now, we are within an economy, even people who have insurance, are struggling to be able to meet co-pays or payments to meet with the mental health therapist. But how can we help and support others in the community who are more likely to come across this individual who can't afford to access a mental health therapist and give them the tools to be able to help them cope and build up their self-efficacy to, I know we spoke a little bit about like getting people to a place where they can acknowledge that they even need mental health support, right? That takes time. And a lot of that healing at that level can happen by a non-mental health professional. Do you think it's also just not, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And so if you've always just had these feelings, these emotions, and you've lived with them, that you just assume that's how life is, right? And until someone shows you that, you know, you can have peace and it's attainable, it it doesn't seem like it's possible for the individual, right? And that's really what I'm also hearing is just kind of giving people this different perspective that they don't have to always be this way. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to my childhood experiences, too, where people existed within community violence and thought it was the norm. And if they never knew that, hey, this is not normal, then of course they're going to continue to think that way. Then we have generational transmission of trauma because now they're passing that on to their offsprings and then so on and so forth. And so now there's this community of individuals who thinks that this is okay and that this is to be expected. Whereas they come across me and I'm just like, this is not normal and it's okay to not be okay. And you don't have to engage in these other things like substance use, for example, to cope with what you're going through. There are other ways to cope. And if we equip more people in the community to have just this basic understanding of what it means to 
be sad versus be depressed or to be anxious versus having an anxiety disorder and recognizing that also even if you have an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder, it's okay. And getting help is also okay. But that comes with doing more of the work I think on the front end with more non-mental health professionals because they have also a bigger face and stake in the community. They're bigger stakeholders. And they also have more relationships at the community level where they can help to destigmatize mental health. Absolutely. No, very good advice. And I guess on that, what advice would you give to people who, you know, are just hesitant? They're hearing this. Maybe they caught the podcast because they, they saw the, you know, the jet or the, the Mercedes and yeah. think, you know, that's what wealth is. And now they're hearing like, oh, maybe I got to question this. But me just signing up and going to talk to somebody, that's not going to happen right away. So what steps can that person take to, you know, whether it's a book, whether it's talking to someone else? I mean, you know, what, what advice would you give to kind of dip the toe in the water to realize that it's not so bad? Yeah. So I think the very first step is just being more attuned to your your emotions and your physiological response to things that are happening in the day to day. That's the very first basic step. That's a good step. And recognizing that if there are certain things that are happening in the environment that's creating this negative or ill feeling or if physiological response that's not typical for you, maybe take a note of that. And then also thinking about ways in which you can soothe or self-cope, right? So thinking about like deep breathing. I think that's a common exercise that a lot of people do, but don't consciously acknowledge the fact that it's actually helping them in the moment. So if you are anxious, for example, like you start to notice the physiological response of an increased heart rate or you have sweaty palms, taking some deep breaths in that moment is an effective coping tool. I can imagine that most therapists will agree about that, that that's something that we often advise people, even people who are depressed, to take deep breaths and be able to notice a difference. But also, there are so many free resources and like meditation tools, mindfulness tools on YouTube. I go on there to pull things for clients during sessions. So I think also mapping on those two things, recognizing when your body is communicating that I'm not okay, but also knowing that there are some free resources out there, like on YouTube. You can definitely Google like mindfulness meditation or deep breath thing. I often listen to the sounds of waves to go to sleep. And that also can help you if you have racing thoughts at night. So thinking about those little things and how your body feels and mapping on a tool to be able to help your body get back to a level of restoration. Absolutely. No, I mean, we listen to the, you know, pay attention more to the gauges in our car than, you know, the, the gauges in, in, in the human experience. So absolutely, all very, very good advice. And if you're out there listening, you know, definitely take that advice. But also if uh, you're interested, you can reach out to Lauren. You can uh, contact her directly on the forum and she will get that in her inbox. But, you know, Lauren, just thank you so much for everything you do, not only uh, for our community, but for the community as a whole. You know, Chicago desperately needs more of this. I mean, love that that we need to have uh, it never ceases so thank you for for being that to others thank you so much for having me i love what i do this is my passion so i would love to answer any questions that people have awesome well thank you again for coming and for for being used thank you